Hello, and welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin, and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch. They tend to be art house and world cinema. What makes this podcast unique is that I weave together my life experiences with an in-depth but emotional discussion of films. I explore the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. As I like to say, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. Today's episode is all about Jane Campion's Palm d'Or winning 1993 film, The Piano. It stars Holly Hunter as Ada McGrath, a Scottish woman who's arranged to be married to a man in New Zealand. She also has a young daughter named Flora. She goes over to New Zealand to marry this man. His name is Alastair Stewart. He's played by Sam Neill. They have a difficult relationship and she ends up falling in love with another man named George Baines and they develop a relationship together. It's a passionate and strange and beautiful film. It has haunted me for years and years. It's very important that I talk about the film because it just has had such an impact on my life. I talk about the very emotional first time that I saw this film. I explore various themes in the film like muteness, violence, and some of my conflicts over the relationship between Ada and Baines. And I also provide you behind the scenes information, including how Holly Hunter prepared for her role. This film means a great deal to me. It really is a work of art with a soul and it's become part of my own soul. So this discussion gets pretty emotional at times and personal, but I try to balance it with a discussion of why I think the film is so powerful. So I definitely hope that you'll stick around and listen to the full episode. There is discussion of violence and sexuality. Please be aware of that. And there are full spoilers. So if you haven't seen the film, I definitely suggest that you watch it first because I reveal everything. That's how I am in every episode. I like to be able to talk freely about these films. So I definitely hope that you'll listen to the full episode and that you'll like it. Her Head and Films has a Patreon where you can financially support the work I'm doing on a monthly basis and you can access rewards and extras like merchandise, extra episodes, and much more. You can find more information at patreon.com slash herheadinfilms. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash herheadinfilms. At one level, you get a shout out on each episode. So I'd love to give a shout out to my wonderful patrons, Christopher, Kelsey, Aaron, Tyler, Max, Juan, Teal, JD, Vanessa, Spunden, Polina, Olivia, Carolyn, Jesse, Feminist Overlord, Michelle, and Lindsay. Thank you all so much for your support. I never take it for granted, and I'm really appreciative of it. If financial support is not an option, and I definitely understand if it isn't, please consider giving me a five-star review on iTunes. I would definitely be grateful for that. You can tell your friends and followers about Her Head in Films. Spread the word. Retweet. Let people know if you really love and connect to what I'm creating and what I'm sharing. Or you can follow me on social media. I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can find links to all my social media accounts in the show notes of each episode. So without further delay, here is my in-depth discussion about the piano and why it means so much to me, why it's had such a, an effect on my life, and I hope that you enjoy this discussion. Before I talk about the film 
and everything that I want to say. I want to take a moment to acknowledge something really terrible that happened in the world. This is the first time on the podcast that I'm talking about a film set in New Zealand. And unfortunately, me doing this episode has coincided with a really traumatic and horrific incident in that country. And I don't think I have a lot of New Zealand listeners, but I do want to address this. And also if I have any Muslim listeners as well. And just recently there was the terrorist attack in Christchurch in which a white supremacist murdered dozens of Muslims in two mosques. And I want to convey to you, those of you who are listening, those of you who are in New Zealand or who also might be Muslim or anybody else, I want to convey to you my sorrow and my heartache over that. I've been following the news about it and it's just been heartbreaking. I know that this didn't happen in a vacuum. I know that we live in a world with terrible Islamophobia, with terrible views and sentiments about refugees and migrants. It's here in the United States with our president. And I know that our president was admired by the man who committed this attack. And he is exporting this kind of hatred and white supremacy around the world at this point, and he's condoning it and making it seem okay. And he's made attacks against Muslims here in our country and against immigrants and refugees and all kinds of things. So I want to say I'm sorry that it happened. I'm sorry that my country is part of exporting and spreading this kind of stuff, this kind of terrible uh, hatred that has infested the world and so many places, even places that are seen as progressive or as safe. And my heart breaks for the victims, for the victims' families, for the people of New Zealand, for Muslims all around the world that have to daily live with the fear that they are not safe, that they are not wanted, that they are not valued. And it's just horrible. It really is. I know that I was reading stuff on Twitter things that Muslims have shared about how scared they are to go to mosques. It should never be that way. No one should go to a place of worship and be scared. Nobody should be scared, period, right? I I feel great amount of fear about mass shootings because they are so common here in the United States. In New Zealand, they're not. They're not common. They're not common in much of the Western world or in a lot of places in the world. They're just not common. And I was heartened to hear that the prime minister in New Zealand is going to change the gun laws and ban semi-automatic weapons. It's really good to hear that there's actual concrete actions being taken, steps being taken to keep people safe and to prevent something like this from happening again. Unfortunately, we don't have that here in the United States. These shootings just keep happening and the hatred is so widespread and it's very scary. So I just wanted to extend my condolences and my sorrow, and it's just been heartbreaking to read the stories, to look at the faces of the victims, pictures of them, hear about their lives, and to know that this will probably happen again, that the Islamophobia continues, that Muslims have to feel unsafe, and migrants and refugees and immigrants, especially those that are Muslim or from the Middle East, that they have to live with that kind of fear and pain. And I'm just so very sorry. There's nothing I can say to change it, but I wanted to let 
those of you listening know that it weighs on me and I do think about it and it breaks my heart. I hate that me talking about a film set in New Zealand coincided with this, but I felt like I had to address it and say something. I try to strike a balance on this podcast. I want it to be a little bit of an escape. I do want it to be a refuge, but at the same time, I also want to acknowledge what's happening, you know, outside of films, (laughs) outside of those things and the things that affect us on an everyday level, you know in our ordinary lives, and that's one of them. I've just been thinking a lot about it, and it's heartbreaking for me. So now I want to talk about The Piano. This is a really important film in my life. I saw it at a young age, and I'll go into depth about that in a moment, and it has made its mark (laughs) on me. It has imprinted itself on me, on my psyche, on my soul. I can't really be objective about it, but I wanted to try to dig into the different layers of it because I think there's a big difference between seeing a film when you're a child or really a teenager in my case when I first saw the piano and when you see it older. I'm almost 30 years old now and you see things differently. You have much more experience. You have a different perspective I think at times and so I'm going to talk about this film in an emotional way but I'm also going to talk about other things about it that are I think worrisome or troublesome in some ways and that I myself am conflicted about and struggling with. I just will be honest about it. I still love the film. I am still haunted by it. I'll always be affected by it. But there are things connected to especially the relationship between Ada and Baines that I'm uncomfortable with and I will dig into that fully. But it's important that when we revisit a film when we're older, sometimes we can have a different view about it. Or it it can just be a more complicated view than when we saw it that first time. And the first time I saw it was pure rapture. I was enraptured by this film. And it still takes me over. It is still like this spell that it casts and this mystery that envelops you and I will be totally honest about that and so but I also want to talk about other things in the film but first I want to discuss my emotional response and my history with the piano and I want to take a little bit of a detour for a moment but I'll get back to the film but I've been thinking lately a lot about how art shapes us This film in particular has been so central to my life, and I have such intense and vivid memories of seeing it for the first time. Recently, Dave Grohl, those of you who know him, he was from Nirvana, and he has a band called the Foo Fighters. I came across something that he said in an interview, and it's been staying with me. It's connected to my feelings about film and about art. So Dave Grohl was talking about the singer Billie Eilish. Some of you may know her. She's become this really big sensation the last uh, year or so. And he said something very profound about her. He has daughters. And he went to this Billie Eilish concert with them. And he talked about how deeply his daughters connected to her music. And so in this interview, he said, quote, What I'm seeing happening with my daughters is the same revolution that happened to me at their age. My daughters are listening to Billie Eilish and they're becoming themselves through her music, unquote. I am in love with that idea that we become ourselves through certain forms of art. For Dave Grohl, it's music. For his daughters, it's Billie Eilish. For me, it's multiple forms of art. I became myself through the novels of Virginia Woolf, through the poetry of Sylvia Plath, 
through the music of Tori Amos and through certain films. And I think that the piano is one of them. And I think that we can come to know ourselves through these works of art and that something is stirred in us. Something takes shape. And I think what the piano did for me, the way that I became myself through it, was that it was one of my early experiences of a very personal connection with cinema. I've talked about some of these films that have had a profound impact on me. You know, one of them would be Jonathan Glazer's Birth. That is a very early experience for me when I'm about 14 years old or 15 years old, when I just feel this gravitational pull towards a film. The Passion of Joan of Arc is one of the most ecstatic, rapturous experiences I've had with cinema. That was also from my teen years, I believe. When I saw Chris Marker's La Jetée, that was a big moment where I was really awakened to the power of cinema. And when I look back on my different memories, the piano is there. And it is a very early experience for me, before I would ever call myself a cinephile, of connecting with a film, of feeling personally moved and almost out of control when watching a film. Something that deeply resonated with me, that stirred emotions in me, that made me feel like I was in the presence of a work of art. And so I would say that I was becoming myself in that moment. I first saw the piano when I was quite young. I was probably a teenager. I don't know the exact year, but I do want to say that it was probably before my father's death in 2006. I mean, that's how I remember it. It's possible that it happened after that, but I don't remember, but it would have been in my teens, my either my early teens or my middle teens, maybe. I have such a vivid memory of the day I watched this film. It was on Bravo, the Bravo channel. Now, years ago, this is how I know it had to be in my teens. It had to be a while back because this was when the Bravo channel was not what it is today. There was not the reality shows. There was not the um, Real Housewives of Beverly Hills and all of that. It was a much more sort of artsy channel. I don't know if some of you remember Bravo in the early 2000s, but they had this show called Inside the Actor's Studio, where they had these really in-depth conversations and interviews with actors. I used to love watching that show. My mom and I would, I remember us laying on her, you know, my parents' bed when I was younger, and at night we would watch the actor Studio, and I remember the host, James Lipton. He would interview all kinds of different actors. I remember Paul Newman in particular. Robin Williams had a really famous uh, interview that was very funny. And so it was It was sort of more of an artsy channel. And it played the piano one day. Um, I don't know if it was a weekend, a weekday, but I was in my parents' room. And they were, I don't know if they were in the living room or if they were gone out of the house and I was there alone. I can't remember. But I was in their bedroom and I was watching the Bravo channel. And their bedroom window was up. And I was sitting on the bed watching this film. In the distance, in the neighborhood, somebody was having some kind of construction work done on their house. And I remember that I could hear like the sounds of the banging of the hammers and the saws and all of these different, you know, sounds of machinery as I was watching the piano. But also the window was letting in the scent of the air and the grass. Like I'm right there. I'm right there in my childhood home. Because in 2015, I lost that house. I lost the house I had lived in for 26 years at that point. I'll never probably see it ever again, that house. The house where 
I lived with my father who died in 2006. The house where, you know, how you'll do, your parents will do the growth thing, like, you know, make a mark on the, you know, the, um, the door or whatever to show your height and how you've grown. We, we had that in there. You know, the house just was so many memories of being with my mother, being with my father, their bedroom. I can remember the furniture in their room. I can remember what the TV looked like. Um, I can remember everything about that house. I still sort of go to it in my mind. I mean, it's only been about four years since we lost it and we moved and there was a lot of upheaval and hardship in my life and we moved to different states and it's just so much has happened and I've been through a lot. But there I am like a teenage girl in my parents' bedroom. I don't know why I was in their room and not mine watching this film. I don't know. I had a TV in my room. I know I did. And I'm just right there on the bed and the window's up and the breeze is coming through. And this film is on the television. And I think my father's alive at that point. You know, I think I saw this while he was alive. And my life is in the before. You know, it's in the before, the catastrophe of his death. You know, I'm young and innocent and I don't know anything about death yet. (laughs) I'm not so afraid. I'm not so broken and shattered the way I am now. My whole life is ahead of me. I still have dreams. (laughs) I mean, they're gone now. I just feel so broken now. But I'm right there watching the piano. And I just remember watching this film. And it just electrified me. It stunned me with the imagery. The forests of New Zealand, the rain, the the costumes, these vivid images that Jane Campion created, and also the violence, but also the the passion, the eroticism of the film. I will forever remember seeing Harvey Keitel naked. <laughs> I was like, oh my god! Um, <laughs> as a teenage girl, he was very, you know, he was attractive in this film. He looked good. Very muscular and masculine, but also soft and something tender about him too. I was just taken over by this film. Absolutely taken over. I I still can't put it into words. I felt like this was a film made for me, or this was a film that, that took me away, that just swept me away completely. And I don't know if up to that point I had had that kind of experience with cinema or with a film. I just don't remember it. But I absolutely fell deeply in love with the film, with the music. The soundtrack is one of my all-time favorites by Michael Nyman, and I'll talk a bit about the soundtrack in a moment. Just everything about this film overtook me and enraptured me, you know, and all these years later, it still has that power for me. And rewatching it for me to talk about it was just, obviously, I'm in such a different place now. You know, that house is gone, that life is gone. You know, I will never be that person again. And I find myself at this time in my life struggling with that, struggling with the loss of my childhood, the loss of my innocence, wanting to go back to that, wanting to go back to when I had my my father, back to when I was safe, you know, before I lost so much, because after my father died, my grandmother died a year later, and then a little, a year or two later, my uncle died. So within three years, three people in my life were dead, and I was like not even 20 years old. I mean, from the age of 16 to 19, or 20, three people in my life died. I 
had a breakdown. I had several breakdowns. I had panic attacks. I was agoraphobic. I was suicidal at times. I was absolutely struggling to survive all of it because of how scary it was and how destabilizing it all was. And I still don't know how I survived it or how I continue to survive it. But I'm just trying to give you a sense of this before and after of my life. And that that's why the before is so tantalizing and so powerful for me and overpowering, I would say, that this is what I want to go back to. This is what I want to live in. Films are often connected to physical places for me. I can remember certain films that I saw in certain theaters or watching the films in my bedroom or in, you know, my parents' bedroom. I can remember the insides of those places. It's so powerful for me. And the films become this connecting thread uh, to my youth and to a part of myself that I'm trying desperately not to lose because... It's so easy to lose that part of yourself, you know. I don't want to lose that girl who's watched the piano and was able to access these emotions inside of her, who was emotional and overwhelmed and open to the transcendent possibilities of art. I had not closed myself off to that. I think as we get older and we become adults, we close ourselves off to those experiences. Experiences of pleasure and rapture and ecstasy when it comes to art. And just being deeply moved and affected by something. And I just am desperately trying to hold on to like that tender, dreamy, sensitive girl that I was. It's important for me to hold on to her and to protect her. I feel, especially lately in the last few years, that the world has really chipped away at me. And has eroded me. That people have eroded me. And they have abandoned and disappointed me in profound and irrevocable ways. The world has taken so much from me, but I am holding on to that girl and I refuse to let her go. I refuse. It's just this film absolutely bewitched me and it's a mysterious film and it has almost a mystical power to it, I think. And it will always be one of the most intense movie memories that I have. It's very, there's, it's very sensory. It's very sensuous in the way that I've described it to you. You know, remembering the window up, remembering the sounds of the construction crew, remembering my parents' bedroom. You know, it's very rare for me to remember watching a film for the first time. And this one just made such a profound impact on me. And I just, I still wonder what happens to those memories. And, you know, they live on in your mind, obviously. But it's like, the moment itself is gone. And that's what's so hard for me to deal with is that memories are like illusions, right? They're like, they're not real. The th- You lived it, but you can't relive it. It's gone. The past is gone. It's not something tangible. It's not something you can touch ever again. But at one time, what you remember was in the moment that you lived it, it was completely real and completely tangible. And then it's gone. And I think film is like a memory machine, right? But I think certain films for me can also sort of churn up the soil and bring the past to the surface for me in really intense and sometimes painful ways. You know, and we can be reminded of like where we were when we saw a certain film and maybe we ache for that time again. I know that I do. So films 
connect me to those times in my life. And it can be it can be a beautiful thing, but it can also be a really painful thing at the same time. So I want to sort of balance my emotional stuff with like some actual tidbits and background about the film and about Jane Campion. I want to give you a sense of who she is and and her work and how, you know, just certain things about the film. And I like that. I like that sort of behind the scenes stuff and, and doing all that. I did a lot of research for this film because I just wanted to speak from a place of knowledge about it. But I myself was curious and just wanted to know certain things because I am so obsessed and fascinated by the film. So I read this book about Jane Campion, and it's called Jane Campion in the Scene, and it's by Ellen Cheshire. And all the sources and all the things that I allude to in this episode will be in the show notes. So just check those out if you're interested in any of this. But um, Cheshire gives some information about Campion and writes about how she was born in New Zealand in 1954. Campion studied anthropology in New Zealand and then she studied painting in Australia. And while she was studying painting, that's when she got really interested in film. And she ended up going to Australian film, television, and radio school. Her parents were involved in theater and they actually had their own theater company for a time. So she comes from this artistic family as well. But it was also, I think, a tumultuous family and there was some dysfunction in it. And I think it's fascinating that here is a filmmaker who actually starts with anthropology and painting. I think that's really fascinating. And I I think maybe it makes her films unique, you know, that she's looking at people and their lives and their motivations. And maybe that's where the anthropology comes from is like this understanding of humanity, right? And then the painting, her films, especially the piano, are incredibly visually beautiful. I've seen almost all her films. I've seen Sweetie, In the Cut, Bright Star, Portrait of a Lady, and I still need to see an angel at my table, and yeah, I still, and Holy Smoke, I haven't seen that. There's still a few more that I need to watch, but I would say especially something like Portrait of a Lady, and The Piano, and even Sweetie, and um, yeah, maybe In the Cut, yeah, Bright Star. They have a painterly quality, the way her films look. They're very meticulous, I think, and they're visually rich and interesting and dynamic. And they're also emotional in a way. I think she is certainly an auteur. I think you are getting someone who imbues their work with a unique personal vision and a personal way of looking at the world. And in Ellen Cheshire's book, she lists out some of the common themes in Campion's work. And those are families that are in turmoil or dysfunctional. She'll often focus on sisters or sort of two women in a film. Uh, women who are searching for an identity, women who may be mad or maybe just sort of don't fit into the conventions and they're sort of untamed. Holly Hunter in an interview talked about how she felt like Campion really focused on untamed women. And I tend to agree, you know, a lot of her heroines are unconventional and I think they often are trying to resist or uh, break free of the constraints of society especially patriarchal society. Sometimes she focuses on women who are creative. And you'll also see a lot of her work, in her work, you'll see wild landscapes. You see this perfectly in the piano, the very wild, untamed landscape of of New Zealand. But you also see it um, 
just throughout her work and a lot of her films, the way that she captures the landscapes and how the landscapes become an integral part of the characters and expressing very emotional things in the films. Something that I've also noticed about Campion's work and that I personally really love about it is the way that she explores sexuality and passion and desire. And specifically with like a female gaze, I feel like there is this intense female gaze in Campion's work. And I'm interested in this idea of a female gaze and what that would look like or what that could even mean. I don't know a ton about it. It's not like I've read academic things about it, but I'm interested in the pleasure of cinema. I mean, we all know about the male gaze, of course, and how men look at women through movies. But aren't women also looking at men in movies? We as women spectators are looking at men and I think it's a safe way to look at them without them looking back without there being any kind of threat of any violence or rejection or disdain I think cinema is a space where desire can be explored and Campion does that I think a lot about how I do talk about men on this podcast at times And about my crushes, whether I'm going on about, you know, James Wilby in Morris or Colin Firth in Girl with a Pearl Earring or even Harvey Keitel in this film, The Piano. He's very masculine. He's very exposed and and sexual. Uh, There is nudity in the film, not just on the part of the woman, but on the man. And I think you can feel Campion's gaze in the film. You know, I've talked about how men don't really look at me in everyday life. I've talked about my ugliness in many episodes of the podcast, whether it's Dogfight by Nancy Savaka, The Enchanted Cottage, or even Patricia Cardozo's Real Women Have Curves. So I've talked about how I exist in the world really as an invisible body and the pain that comes with not being desired. It's really been with me my whole life. So I don't really go up to men. I don't engage with them a lot, you know. Uh, I don't really get to explore my own desires in that way. So for me, it's like cinema has become this place where I can have a gaze. I guess I can have a female gaze and I can gaze at men and admire their beauty and their bodies that I yearn for. And I feel really vulnerable saying that, (laughs) but it is the truth and it's the way I feel. And I, I have this gaze when I'm watching a film. I think we all do. And I think we all become like Flora and Stuart in this film in some of the scenes that I talk about, their voyeurism, where they watch Ada and Baines making love or being nude together. We become voyeurs through films, right? And I think women directors also have a gaze, just like we as spectators and viewers do. And we can often see men portrayed in different ways in women's films, with a focus perhaps on sensuality and eroticism, something that is not quite so objectifying. And I do think it's why I'm so drawn to Jane Campion's work and the way that it includes that female gaze and that female desire, that yearning and that aching that I so understand in my own life. And of course, she's also gazing at women in a different way, not just men. But I do notice the way that she looks at men in her film, specifically Harvey Keitel in this film. And I felt like he had this, he had this intense eroticism to him, male and like physical beauty. 
uh, with his masculinity and his desire, but also his vulnerability and exposure. And I don't know if we get to see that in a lot of films by men. That's something that I really appreciate about her work. Cheshire also talks about the piano itself a bit, and it was very interesting when she said that it took about nine years for the film to get made, from the moment when Jane Campion wrote it, because she did write the, the script and the screenplay, and when it finally got made, and it took her nine years to really realize her vision with this film. And another thing that fascinated me was that there's a lot of rain in the piano, and Ellen Cheshire writes that, quote, the trees were piped with special effect rain through a series of underground piping, unquote. I thought that was fascinating. So the trees themselves had rain coming out. It's a very rainy, muddy sort of terrain in, in New Zealand at the time when this film is set. And even though the film is beautiful, uh, it is visually beautiful. I also liked that Campion did not shy away from showing like the reality of life in the 19th century because that's when it's set. And I think we can sort of idealize the past and not really understand that it was actually a really difficult time for people to live in the 19th century, even up until probably really the 21st century. <laughs> um there was a lot of uh, struggles for people. But in the piano, she shows the mud. She shows at one time one of the women using the bathroom outdoors. Like, so, you know, she shows the difficulty of women's clothing, you know, the corsets and all the layers. So I don't think the film necessarily idealizes that time period. Campion is very careful to show some of the details and the, the realities of everyday life. So Holly Hunter did this really great interview with Alicia Malone for Filmstruck. Filmstruck is no more. It was this great streaming site with Art House Film and with the Criterion Collection. And it shut down in 2018, late 2018, which was really heartbreaking for a lot of us cinephiles. But on their YouTube channel, they have put up a lot of the interviews and specials and extras that they had on the site. So that was where I found this Holly Hunter interview with Alicia Malone that was done probably a couple years ago. And it was really good. And it was in-depth. It was like a 20-minute interview, which is pretty rare. I really enjoyed watching it. I think that this film features one of my favorite performances by a woman. I think this is one of the greatest female performances of all time. I, I don't have any problem saying that. That I think Holly Hunter just completely embodied this character of Ada McGrath brought her to life and gave her all to this role. And I think Holly Hunter is absolutely astonishing in this film. But what's interesting is that Holly had to fight for this role. Jane Campion envisioned Ada in a very different way. She envisioned Ada as taller, I think, and she just, she had a different vision for her. And really, according to Wikipedia, Sigourney Weaver was the first choice to play Ada. But she declined. Other women who were thought of were Jennifer Jason Leigh and also Isabel Hubert. Hubert was also heavily considered. She went so far as to have vintage photos taken of herself from that time period to make her look like she was, I guess, in the 19th century. So that shows you Isabel's dedication. <laughs> she really wanted this role, it sounds like. 
And if you think about it, Isabel is sort of similar to Holly Hunter's stature. And look, they're both small and thin and delicate in that way. But Holly made her case. She sent a video in of herself playing piano. She had played from an early age. And she also got with a Scottish dialect coach to create the dialect. So I thought that was fascinating. And she won Campion over. She won her over, even though at first Campion did not even envision the character in this way. Holly Hunter was persistent and determined, and I'm glad that she was. I I really can't imagine anyone else playing this part, personally. Holly just was enraptured by the script, she says in this interview. She was absolutely in love with it, and something that really entranced her were the description of the trees, and she said that they were alive as the characters were. And I thought that was a beautiful way of putting it. And it's true. There are trees throughout this film. They are serpentine and uh, and bare and very evocative, those trees. And they're all throughout the film. The landscape is really crucial to the film. And the way that it is so massive and almost swallows Ada up in a way. The way the mud almost swallows everybody up. I'll talk about a scene later on when... Ada is being attacked by Stuart, her husband, and she's grabbing onto the trees. She's getting trapped in the trees and trying to get away from him. It's it's a stunning scene. And Holly talked about how she actually got with a sign language expert and actually created a unique sign language for the film. Because according to Holly, at the time the film is set, there would have been no set sign language. And it differed by country and even differed by family or community, according to Holly. So she created this sign language on her own with this coach. And then she taught the sign language to Anna Paquin, who would play her daughter, Flora. And this was a way that Holly and Anna were able to bond and have an intimacy with each other. It was also really important to Holly that she play the piano in the film and that she not be dubbed. Uh, The music was actually done before the film started to shoot so that Holly could play the pieces on set and play them as she was doing the scenes. And Michael Nyman is the composer who created the score and he made the music for the for the character and also for the level that Holly Hunter could play at. And she said that she did struggle to get really good at the piano. She had to get to this high level of playing, but she said that she really did it out of fear because she knew that if she didn't play good enough, they would dub her, they would use somebody else, you know, in post-production, I guess. And she just felt that it was crucial that she play the piano in the film because the piano is so central to Ada. It's an extension of her. It's her voice. And so Holly was intent on playing that herself. And I'll talk about the soundtrack in a moment. I just want to let you know there is a novel of the film. It's like, I guess, a novelization. It was written after the film came out. And I ended up buying it. I didn't really get it in time to read it for this episode. And actually, even if I had, I wouldn't have read it. Because I think it would have tainted uh, my, uh, discussion of the film, that it would have been hard to keep things separate. And I'm sure if I had read things in the novel, I would have mentioned them in the episode. And so for me, I kind of wanted to keep them separate, but I do plan on reading the novel. And it was written partly by Campion, but she also wrote it with Kate Pullinger. So both of them wrote this novel and it's, it's not just turning the book into a novel. 
it's actually adding to the film. So it's not just turning the film into a novel. It's sort of enriching the film, adding to the film. From what I read, it gives you more information about Ada, about her life in Scotland, about why uh, she's mute, why she has Flora, like what happened to Flora's father, and all kinds of things like that. So it actually expands on the story. So if you're like me and you're kind of obsessed with this film and you're enraptured by the universe that it creates and the world that it creates, you might be interested in reading the novel just to give you a better sense of the characters and the story and everything like that. I just wanted to mention it because I had absolutely no idea there was a novel also written after the film. That just fascinates me. And so I'm actually really excited to read it. And and in a way, it's like extending the film for me, you know, because the film ends. And so I can spend more time with Ada and Flora and all these characters that I've just become fascinated by. This film won quite a few awards. Um, Holly, first of all, it won some Academy Awards. Holly Hunter won for Best Actress. Jane Campion won for Best Original Screenplay, and Anna Paquin won for Best Supporting Actress. And at the Cannes Film Festival, Holly Hunter won for Best Actress, and the film also won the Palme d'Or. Really big things that this film won. Now I want to focus on the soundtrack for a moment because this is so crucial to the film. I don't even think the film would be the same without the music, right? And this is one of my favorite soundtracks, and part of the reason that I love film scores especially from my favorite films, is that it's a way for you to relive the film. It's a way for you to extend the film and to re-enter it. And so every time I listen to The Heart Asks Pleasure First, which is my favorite um, song, and it's a lot of people's favorite song from the film, I've actually described the song as like my soul. It's like the the sound of my soul. (laughs) It's like if you put me in sonic form, if you put me into the form of a song, this is what it would sound like. Like it's so much a part of me and a part of my soul. I just, it's everything to me. The heart asks pleasure first. It's just, and when I saw the film for the first time, the music was a huge, huge part of what wrapped me up in the mystery of the film, what engaged me, what moved me. The film would just not be the same without Michael Nyman's music. It just wouldn't, you know. So there's this piece on The Guardian where Jane Campion and Michael Nyman wrote about the soundtrack. And so I wanted to share something that Nyman wrote. He said, quote, When I went through the script with Jane, she indicated where Ada needed a piano piece. I asked her, if Ada could speak, what would she be saying? And Jane gave me an annotated script showing the emotions for each scene to give me some sense of the purpose of her playing. I decided that she'd have been familiar with Scottish folk music, and so I became a musicologist, going to the London University Library and copying transcriptions of songs. I couldn't write music that was too anachronistic or music that had nothing to do with myself as a composer. So the result was a compromise. The feel of 19th century salon music with 20th century minimalist techniques. As Ada was a radical character, I thought she could have been a radical composer. And Nyman also talks about Holly Hunter. And he says that she, quote, played with an emotional power that still influences me whenever I perform the score. The soundtrack helped define the feel of the film as it was shooting. Hunter said as she accepted her Oscar that it helped her create the character of Ada, unquote. 
So Holly Hunter insisted on playing that music, and it made all the difference because her playing infused the music with the soul and the heart of Ada. And that's why I think she was so adamant that she play, because she is Ada in the film. And so the playing of the music has to be Ada's touch. It has to be Ada's hands. And those are Holly Hunter's hands. And so it was actually the perfect choice for her to play and for them not to dub her. Because yeah, they could have brought in a classical pianist to play all of these songs. But I think it's more real and emotional and beautiful to have Holly Hunter playing those songs. And maybe it's not so important that it be technically perfect or technically brilliant, but it's about the emotion that is behind the playing. And that's what an actor can bring that maybe a classically trained musician can't. And so I think through the playing, when you hear The Heart Asks Pleasure first, you're hearing Holly Hunter play it. And so you're hearing Ada play it. And you are hearing Ada's soul and spirit and her voice. You can feel it. It's almost tangible to you. And I think that's also why the music is so powerful and why it lasts and why it enters your heart, right? Is that it's it's this woman playing this music and speaking through it and trying to be heard through it. So now on to my full analysis of the film. I have so much to say. The film was released in 1993, written and directed by Jane Campion, as you know. Holly Hunter plays Ada McGrath. Anna Paquin plays Flora McGrath, her daughter. Sam Neill plays Alastair Stewart. Harvey Keitel plays George Baines, referred to as Baines, and, and Stewart is referred to as Stewart. You know, Holly Hunter won an Oscar for her performance. Anna Paquin won an Oscar for her performance. Campion wins an Oscar for the screenplay. So this is a very feted and celebrated film as well. It's one of those where when it was released, the critics were very receptive to it and loved it and enjoyed it. It also had, I think, broad appeal to audiences as well. It's one of those rare films that has that art house sensibility, that art house beauty, but then it also had a lot of success and connected with mass audiences as well. So I'm going to go through, I'm going to talk about different themes in the film that I think are important. Sometimes I go chronologically through a film, scene by scene, uh, but I think this works better. I just want to talk about themes and important things that I think this film shows and explores. Ada McGrath is married off to a man in New Zealand. She's originally from Scotland. She has a Scottish accent. At the beginning of the film, we hear a voiceover. It's not Ada speaking physically. It's the voice in her mind because she's a mute and she's been mute since she was a child. We don't quite know why. It's not explained why she's mute. Her father has really arranged her marriage to Stuart to a man that Ada has never met. And so she and Flora are to go to New Zealand and she's to marry Stuart and have a life with him. But from the beginning, there's Ada's voiceover. And so the film is grounded in her perspective. And we even see through her eyes in the very first scene. The opening scene, she has her hands over her face, almost like bars. And we see through them. Um, and we see this distorted, blurry world, and it's her world. Her voiceover explains some of what's happening, that she's to meet Stu, you know, to go and live with Stuart, that she's sent over to New Zealand. And I imagine that this must be, she must feel some fear and trepidation. You know, this is a man she doesn't know. She's moving to a country, to a land where she's never lived and she's never been. I would imagine that's a really scary thing. 
she says in this voiceover that the piano is her voice and it's really how she expresses herself to the world. It's the only thing in the world that she has that she can express herself through. And I think it's a reminder to us that there are different ways of expressing ourselves. There are different ways of speaking that are not necessarily speech. Art can be a very powerful vehicle for expression. And the piano is crucial to Ada. It's part of her life. It's part of her identity. It's as important to her as her daughter Flora probably is. It's that, um, it's that essential, I think, to who she is. I don't think she knows how to live without it. And there is this look of ecstasy on her face anytime she does play the piano because they're dropped on the shores of New Zealand along with the piano. She plays the piano outside in on the shore. It's just beautiful. It's like it's an aspect of the film that's so strange and so interesting. You know, this piano on a beach, right? It's a fascinating image. It's a fascinating idea. And then to see the way that it plays out in the film is beautiful. Ada, the way that she communicates with people, with everyday people in her ordinary life, is through sign language. So she does sign language with Flora, and then Flora will translate sometimes, and then sometimes Ada will write on a little uh, pad of paper that she has that hangs around her neck with like this little pencil. So she has different ways of expressing herself, but the emotion that comes out of her comes out through the piano, really. And I think this is partly or really the main reason why I think Holly Hunter's performance is so astonishing and powerful is that Hunter really has to communicate through her hands, her eyes, her facial expressions. It's a very corporeal kind of acting, an acting of the body that is expressed through the body, through the hands, the eyes, the face. She has to convey very deep wells of emotion through those actions and I noticed throughout the film the way she used her hands whether she was doing sign language or the way she would touch people whether she touched Flora or Baines or Stuart that touch was another way that she really expressed herself as well and her her hand expressions are very beautiful and her eyes are very expressive as well and so I think that's also part of why Holly Hunter's performance is so unforgettable and so masterful I mean, I would imagine if you wanted to be an actress, this would be a film to watch and to learn from, to learn from Holly Hunter, because I think she is, I think she's actually really underrated. I read this article that was talking about Holly Hunter and how really after the piano, she did not get like these really big starring roles in these big films anymore, that a lot of her work has been more under the radar and more maybe supporting actress or like independent films or things like that. She she hasn't necessarily gotten the roles or the films of like, say, a Meryl Streep or a Julianne Moore since The Piano. And And it is unfortunate. I feel like this is a woman who is deeply talented. And seeing her interview with Alicia Malone was great. And the way that Holly Hunter expresses herself. And she's very smart. She's very intelligent very passionate, very knowledgeable, very eloquent when she is talking about things. And you can just tell that this is a woman with a great deal of talent and feeling. And um, it's a shame. It's a shame that she hasn't really been given the roles to maybe show all of that in the years since the piano. 
But that happens to a lot of actresses, unfortunately. You can't quite explain why it happens, why they don't get those roles, why their careers seem to sort of fade out, or you just don't hear much about them as they get older. Um, The roles sort of dry up, I guess. And sexism is part of it, obviously, that as women age, there's just not the same amount of roles for them the way there is for men. And I do feel like Holly Hunter is underutilized and underrated as well. The piano is so crucial to Ada that when Stuart and Baines show up, and what I read was that Baines was Stuart's estate manager. That's their connection and they how they know each other. Baines is sort of really close with the Maori, um, the indigenous people of New Zealand. And the Maori come as well to help... Uh, carry the things back to Ada and Stuart's home, but they're not able to take the piano. They have to leave it at the beach, and Ada is really inconsolable about that. She's devastated that they can't take her piano. At first, she insists. She doesn't even care if they don't grab her clothes and stuff like that. She wants her piano. It's like, it's almost like breathing to her. She has to have it, but they're not able to. And later on, Baines takes Ada and Flora back to the beach so that Ada can be with the piano because she misses it, obviously. And it's just this beautiful scene of Ada and Flora playing the piano with at the same time and then Ada playing it by herself and she has such a look of ecstasy on her face while she plays it. Just She closes her eyes and she just loses herself in the music. And you can just tell that this piano is like life to her. And you see Baines watching her and seeing that. I mean, he doesn't even know her that well. You know, he barely knows her at that point. But he seems sort of intrigued by it to see her having this emotional expression, this emotional connection to the piano and the passion that she feels for this instrument. It's just like a little moment on the beach where you can tell that he is drawn to her in that way. So Ada's relationship with the piano is crucial and it's connected to her muteness. Her life is defined by silence in many ways. Her inability to speak or her choice to not speak, her choice to be mute possibly. That in turn creates her intense relationship with the piano. That this is her one central way of of communicating. And the piano also, much of the drama revolves around the piano. You know, when Stuart trades the piano to Baines who then coerces Ada into teaching him how to play it. I'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, the men, the, it also shows how the men don't understand the meaning of the piano for Ada, and they don't really care. They treat the piano as a piece of property, just like they treat Ada like property. It's something to be bought and sold, traded and exchanged. And Ada is treated like that too. It mirrors, you know, the the way that the piano is treated and, you know, exchanged and traded. It sort of mirrors the ending as well when Stuart basically gives Ada to Baines. That doesn't mean that Ada doesn't have any agency in the film. I'm going to talk more about this. But she is at the mercy of these men. And so is her prized possession, her piano. You, you feel that in the film, that she's vulnerable. She's very vulnerable. But the piano also, I think, represents her main form of resistance in a world that is so oppressive for women. It's her voice. It's her communication. 
And I do want to acknowledge that there are people who have raised concerns and issues with the way that the Maori are represented in this film. I am not going to go into that. I think that that should be people who are much more knowledgeable about the Maori, about the history of New Zealand, and things like that. But there's obviously a tension between the Maori, the indigenous people of New Zealand, and the white settlers, the the white uh, colonialists that live there. Ada is white. Stuart and Baines are white. And we see how the white people in New Zealand subjugate and oppress the Maori. That throughout the film, the Maori perform the grunt labor. You know, they perform the physical labor in the film. They carry the piano. They do all kinds of different things like that. None of the Maori have names in the film. They they speak in their own language, but we don't know what they're saying. A lot of people have issues with that, understandably. I just don't feel like I am knowledgeable enough and I'm not going to be. You know, I don't have the time or anything like that to dig into all that history, you know, because, and, and to do it justice, it wouldn't be right. It wouldn't be right for me to try to go into all that when there's no way I could do it justice. But it is an issue that some people have with the film is the way that the Maori are represented, that they're not given like much of a voice or, or anything like that, that they're just sort of in the background, just sort of there, right? There to be used, (laughs) by the white people and to help the white people in their story and in their narrative. But the Maori don't have really any voice or any part of the story, you know, that's meaningful in in any way. So I wanted to acknowledge that. I'll put some, some in the show notes, I'll put sources because there's like a really, um, there's a really in-depth essay about the, the treatment of the Maori in the film and the representation of them. And I think that would be better to just read that than for me to try to to analyze that when I don't have the, the knowledge base or the skills to do that personally. And I wouldn't want to botch it <laughs> because it deserves, it deserves serious treatment and serious looking at. Um, but I just don't have that knowledge. But I did want to acknowledge it. So, and Bell Hooks, I have to say, Bell Hooks does not like this film at all. <laughs> She um, pretty much ripped it apart in a review, and I'll have a link to that because I did read it, and she talks about the representation of the Maori and things like that, and she doesn't like the sexual politics or the gender politics in the film either. I respect Bell Hooks immensely, but I just want to let you know that there are people who have issues with the film, and that if you want to read about that, you certainly can. You know, I have a a personal connection to the film and it moves me. At the same time, I can acknowledge that there are problems with it. And sometimes films can do both. They can do certain things really well and they can do other things really badly. And that doesn't mean that you just throw the whole film out for me personally. It means that you grapple with it a bit, but you can also appreciate the other things that the film might be doing really well, if that makes sense. That's how I feel about it is that films are not perfect, just like people are not perfect, that it's complicated and messy. And sometimes you have to come to terms with that, right? And you have to acknowledge and accept that. 
I'm just not a big fan of like canceling things or canceling people or throwing away works of art because they have problems with them. I just take a more open-minded approach to it and a more complex and nuanced approach. But I did want to acknowledge some issues that people have and I will go deeper into some issues that I have in a little bit when I talk about the relationship between Ada and Baines because it is one that I am grappling with. (laughs) But I wanted to return back to what I was saying about the piano, about Ada's muteness and her silence. That was something that bothered Bell Hooks was that it was showing this woman who was mute, who was powerless. Yeah, she just, she had issues with the muteness as well. But I think a reason why this film resonated with me so much was that when I was really young, about five or six, I had issues talking to people. I've always had social anxiety and it's been really debilitating for me. It's made it difficult for me to interact with people, to connect with people, to be expressive and communicative around people. I get very shy. I get very withdrawn. I just have a hard time talking to people like in the way that I talk on this podcast. This is not how I am when I'm in front of someone. You know, when I'm in front of someone, I get very anxious and I I can't speak in this way. And I, I had trouble speaking to people when I, especially when I was younger. And I actually had people question me if I was mute. I remember being like, in the cafeteria one day, like in elementary school, and we were, I was sitting at a table with these other kids, and like I wasn't speaking. I couldn't speak. I was so anxious, you know, to be around people. And I remember one of the kids asking me if I was mute. I didn't know what to say. I don't even remember if I said anything. But that was something that sort of haunted me throughout school, was not being able to talk or being very quiet, being very withdrawn and shy and introverted. And people just even questioning if I could speak. It was something I always struggled with. And so I think as a result, writing became my form of expression. For Ada, it's her piano, it's music. But for me, it was writing. And from an early age, probably like 10, maybe 10 or 11, I started writing in a diary. I would write poetry. I would just write my thoughts down. And I still keep a diary. And I've actually held on to all my old diaries because it's important to me. And so writing has been an outlet and a way for me to express myself. And and so I think art can do that for us. That sometimes some of us can't speak or we struggle to speak or to connect with people. And so art becomes this alternative way to connect or to at least express ourselves in some ways. So I want to talk about um, how this film looks at violence against women, at patriarchy, misogyny, and the conditions of women's lives. I think this is in some ways a feminist film in the way that it does look at women's lives and it does look at violence against women and, and misogyny. It really shows the dehumanizing treatment of women within patriarchy and shows how women lived in the 19th century and the struggles of their lives. You know, Ada is basically given to Stuart for an arranged marriage. She's not given a choice in it. At the same time, I think that this, while this is a film about, I think, the oppression of women, especially in the 19th century, of white women, obviously, this is not looking at the Maori women or anything like that. It's looking at a white woman's story and her narrative. I do think that within this oppressive patriarchal system that Ada does assert her agency through her music and through her sexuality at times. And I do think that she is resisting the constraints that are put on her life. I see the film in that way. I don't just see it as as exposing 
you know, that misogyny. I also see it as showing a woman who is resisting it, who is trying to um, assert herself within it. Because she does go against Stuart several times in her affair with Baines. That is a resistance against Stuart, I think. This man who's trying to control her body, trying to control her sexuality, trying to control her in every way. And for her to make that choice to go to Baines, to be with Baines um, in their affair, that is, I think, an empowering thing that she's doing, a a moment of agency, a moment of choice in a life in which she's really been stripped of choice so many times over and over again. She is a victim in many ways of male violence in this film, of toxic masculinity, I guess you could say, even though that phrase would not have obviously been used in the Victorian era, but it's also about her resisting that, I think, as well. And violence against women is a big theme in this film. Domestic violence is a big theme and it manifests in multiple ways. First, there's the play of Bluebeard and Bluebeard obviously murdered his wives. That story, that's what that's about. And so the white people um, in the area put on this performance of Bluebeard where they have women's heads, their bloody heads floating, shows a man trying to chop up a woman with an axe. And this obviously foreshadows the horrific violence that Ada endures at the end of the film at the hand of, at the hands of Stuart when he chops off her finger. So it is a foreshadowing. And Stuart is the agent of violence in this film. And it's a surprising violence because at the beginning, he seems really benign and sort of he doesn't come off like a violent person at all. Um, but it just shows you the way that all men can be capable of violence against women and of treating women really badly. We don't really expect it from Stuart. He, he just seems like this bumbling, innocuous, benign kind of person. But in reality, it's very different. The first act of violence is when he tries to rape her in the woods after he has voyeuristically watched her having sex with Baines. She's on her way to try to meet Baines again like another day and he and Stuart appears in the path to stop her and he tries to rape her in the woods and she's struggling to get away from him. I have to say these scenes of her struggling against Stuart were really emotional for me. There's something about the way that Holly Hunter acted them. You can feel her powerlessness. You can feel her her very palpable fear. And also you see her fighting for her life, you know, fighting tooth and nail to try to get away from him. But to, st- to see her staggering in this scene through the trees, the leaves, the brambles, in her voluminous skirt (laughs) and she's so little and she's so defenseless in so many ways and to just see her fighting and she's holding on to this branch and he grabs her and it's an intense scene to watch to watch that um that fight between the two of them and fearing that she's not going to win it but she does because they hear flora's voice in the distance and stewart stops and then of course the the violence he commits when he cuts her fingers off or one of, he cuts her finger off, cuts one of them, after he finds out that Ada has been trying to com- to communicate with Baines, because Stuart basically locked her in the house, because he said he couldn't trust her, and he didn't want her to go and be with Baines, because he knew about the affair. So Ada had put a message to Baines on, on a key from her piano, and she had given it to Flora. The message basically said, you have my heart, telling Baines that she loves him. And she gives it to Flora to take to Baines, 
But instead of Flora taking it to him, she betrays her mother and takes it to Stuart instead. She's been calling him Papa. She has started to become close to Stuart in some way and her loyalties become split. She feels distanced from her mother because as I'll talk about in a, in a moment, Ada starts to give those lessons to Baines and that distances Flora from her mother. Ada is in Baines's house with him and Flora is outside. She's sort of banished. And so this distance is created between mother and daughter. And so the daughter betrays her mother. And women often do that under patriarchy. They do. Women betray each other. It happens all the time. This is just one example of it. Stuart sees the key and he takes an axe. He's in the middle of doing something and he has he happens to have an axe. And he rushes home and he grabs Ada and, and takes her outside. And she's fighting and she's resisting. Just like she did that first time when he tried to rape her. And he puts her hand on the chopping block and cuts one of her fingers off right in front of Flora. And the blood spews onto her face. Her mother's blood spews onto her face. It's one of the most shocking scenes of violence that I think I've ever witnessed. And I still remember when I watched the film for the first time, I was like, no, this is not going to happen. There, he's not going to do what I think he's going to do. Like the whole time in your mind, you're like, no, no, this is not going to happen. They're not going to do this, right? <laughs> They're not going to go there. And then they do. It's like this dread that you feel. But I was so glad they didn't actually show the chopping of the finger. I don't know if I could have handled that. I'm very squeamish. <laughs> I'm just incredibly squeamish when it comes to stuff like that. But I think that Campion handles this violence in a very sensitive way by not showing the goriness, but rather focusing on Ada's reaction to this violence that's being committed against her body. Ada really collapses in the mud. She's like in shock and there's this amazing scene where she's walking and she just collapses and her skirt is so voluminous and it just sort of puffs out like a balloon as she sinks into this mud. She's in complete shock. And then Stuart gives the finger to Flora to take to Baines and says that he'll keep chopping a finger off if he doesn't stay away from Ada, if they try to keep seeing each other. So while at first Stuart seemed benign and he seemed safe, I guess, his savagery surges out and it's wild and it's really terrifying. And by chopping off her finger, it's also a way to keep her from, from playing the piano. So he also wants to take away her voice too. He wants to take away her sexuality, you know, her connection to Baines. He wants to violate her body, obviously. But then he also wants to take away her voice too. And then a third incident is when he tries to rape her again. When she's recovering in bed after her fingers chopped off. And he tries to rape her. But he stops. Because she opens her eyes. She wakes up and she's looking at him. And he stops. And that's when he thinks that he hears her voice. He thinks that he can hear what she's saying inside her head. And she's telling him to let her go. And to let her be with Baines. And that's what he ultimately does. He, like she's a piece of property, like she's the piano, right? He trades her, I guess, to Baines, gives her to Baines, like she is just this piece of property, which she is, you know, in that day and age and in that time period, she is property. 
And so that leads me to my discussion of Baines and Ada, because I find this to be a really complicated thing for me, and I'm much more conflicted about it now than I was when I first saw the film as a teenager, obviously, even though I considered myself a feminist from a very early age, and I still see myself as a feminist. When I first saw the film, I don't think that I registered the coercion with Baines. I saw that relationship as romantic and erotic and loving, I think. And I think with this reviewing it, it's more complicated for me. And I'm, com- I'm, I'm conflicted about it. I really am. And is it a course of relationship? I'm going to probably do like a cop out. <laughs> and I'm going to say that it is and then it isn't. That it's both. And sometimes I guess things can be both at the same time. It undeniably begins with coercion. When Stuart trades the piano to Baines, Baines says he wants Ada to give him lessons. Unbeknownst to Stuart, Baines then makes a deal with Ada that during her visits, she has to do sexual things with him and that she can earn her piano back if she complies. And so she really has no choice but to go along with it, even though she doesn't want to. So it starts gradually where at one lesson, Baines tells her to take her jacket off so that he can see her arms. And then he touches her arms and he touches her back as she plays and he takes off his own shirt. In the next lesson, he grabs her. He rips her shirt, but then he stops and he wants her to lie with him for a little while. And she does, but she's clothed and he rubs her back and he kisses her. And then at another lesson, Ada and Baines lie together naked. And Flora has been banished from the from Baines's house, and she has to be outside the whole time, which, like I said earlier, creates this distance between her and her mother, when before they had been extremely close. So these men sort of come between Flora and Ada, and you can feel the way that upsets Flora, and how she becomes jealous, and she becomes resentful of that. And she actually sees the two of them laying together naked uh, when she looks through this hole in the wall. And it's actually the same thing that um, Stuart will do later on when he sees Baines and Ada have sex. Now, after this, and there was an earlier moment too when he was touching her stockings and there was just like this one little hole in the stocking and he was touching her skin. Eventually, Baines decides that he wants to call off this arrangement. And he gives Ada the piano without her having to continue doing the lessons or doing the sexual things. He comes to a point where he doesn't want to coerce her. He wants her to genuinely care about him instead of pretending. And he says that this arrangement between the two of them, it's been making her a whore and it's been making him wretched. So this relationship is often represented as very romantic. And I don't think that you can completely argue that. It absolutely begins in coercion. And that really the person who is maybe um, the most dangerous at the beginning of this film seems to be Baines. You know, like I said, Stuart comes off like, you know, sort of clueless and benign and just sort of spineless. Like, I don't know, Stuart just seems innocent or like harmless, I guess the word would be. Whereas with Baines, with this coercion, with his mind going to, well, instead of me just giving this woman her piano back, 
I'm going to get sexual favors out of her. He comes off as like the more unsafe one between the two of them. And then by the end of the film, their roles have completely switched. Where Stuart is the agent of violence. Stuart is the danger and the threat. The one that you never saw coming. And that can often happen. You know, there are men who kill their wives and girlfriends and families and friends never see it coming. It absolutely comes out of the blue because misogyny is just so much a part of our culture. All men are um, vulnerable to it and can have these really toxic views of women and they may hide it. They may not be open about it. You may not be able to see that these men really hate women or they don't respect women. That's not always visible to women. It can be very difficult to to find men who are good, who don't believe bad things about women, who are not misogynistic, because it doesn't always show up immediately. It can come out later in other ways, and with Stuart it does. And then Baines has this turnaround where he starts to feel bad about the coercion and that he's done this to Ada, and you really didn't see that coming either. So these two men completely change over the course of the film. Stuart becomes more violent, more dangerous, and Baines becomes, I guess, more decent towards Ada because he has started to fall in love with her. I guess that's the difference, is that once he feels like emotions for Ada, once he sees her not as a body or as just a female, once he, I guess, starts to see her as a person and to feel love for her or to feel an attachment or an emotional connection to her, he can no longer, I guess, degrade her or subjugate her in that way. But it's still disturbing that he did it at all. That's what I'm saying. I still think that Ada does have emotions for him and I think they are real. But at the same time, Ada is in a situation where she can't win. I mean, who else does she have to go to? I mean, she really doesn't have a lot of options. But once Ada and Baines, you know, the relationship breaks off. You know, he says, I don't want to do this anymore. You can have your piano. But Ada becomes very inconsolable. You know, for days, she's just sort of in a bad mood and like, she misses him and she, I guess, had developed feelings for him. I think the film is also about a woman's sexuality that perhaps Baines sparked something in Ada because she's not having sex with Stuart. They don't have a sexual relationship. They're not affectionate with each other. She's not attracted to him. And so often back then, women weren't allowed to be sexual. They weren't allowed to have sexual agency or to prioritize their own erotic pleasure. And so I think with Ada, we see a woman who is taking control of her desire and following her desire because she runs off to Baines. She goes back to his house. She doesn't let Flora go with her and Flora is very upset about that. She goes to Baines and That's when he confesses that he's just sick over her. She's all he can think about. If she doesn't feel the same way for him, he tells her to leave. And she starts to hit him. And then she sinks to the floor. And then they start kissing. And so I think that he did ignite something in her. And I think that she is genuinely attracted to him and does have feelings for him. And I think this is a moment in which she does have agency, where she makes that choice, if you think about it. She didn't ever have to see Baines again. He gave her the piano. He said, this is over. And she could have just lived her life with Stuart and Flora. 
she would have never had to see veins again. But she makes the choice to go back to him, to run to him, and then to kiss him and make love with him. And so I do think Ada makes that choice and she does have agency in the film in that way. And not only does she assert her agency through the piano, but also through her sexuality. I really do. I I still think this is a very erotic love scene. And it, it hit me that way when I was a teenager. And it still hits me that way. It's an incredibly erotic love scene. Their kissing is incredibly passionate. The lovemaking is very passionate. There's some oral sex uh, that Baines performs on Ada. And I always love to see that. Because we rarely see that in films. We rarely see men centering or prioritizing female pleasure through oral sex um, for women. And so I loved seeing that. (laughs) And when they are making love, when they are together, it's almost like Baines is like devouring her. And you can tell that she just revels in it. She revels in being touched by him, being held by him, being consumed by him and by this passion that she feels for him. So that's why I say that this relationship is both. It starts with coercion, but I don't think that's how it ends up. I do think that Ada makes a choice to be with Baines within the situation that she's in and the limited choices that she has, that she is attracted to him and she genuinely cares for him and loves him. But that's where my conflict is, right? And it's okay to be conflicted about things. And then I think it's okay to say that I still think that it's a loving relationship. I mean, within the film, sometimes you can't hold a film to the standards of like, you know, the time that you're living in, right? You have to take the film for what it is within that frame. And within that story and within that narrative, Ada does have agency and Ada is passionately in love with Baines. And I did find it beautiful when I was a teenager, that passion and that connection and that romance. I wasn't turned on by the coercion. You know, that's not what turned me on or I guess aroused uh erotic feelings in me it was this scene you know it was this scene when they are both consenting when they are both choosing to be together and it's two adults you know and their bodies melting into each other and devouring each other and and expressing love and I found that incredibly erotic and beautiful and sensual it's just a gorgeous sensual scene and, I, and so much of Campion's films do have that sexuality to them. I mean, there's a great deal of sex in In the Cut, for instance. Or The Portrait of a Lady has some sexual scenes in it. It's, it's a theme that Campion comes back to is this very passionate sexuality, passionate emotions, um, eroticism and desire. Sometimes the destructive aspect of desire. And if you think about it, Ada's desire is destructive in that by being with Baines, you know, choosing to be with Baines, she puts herself at risk with Stuart. But I don't think she ever thought that Stuart would commit that kind of violence against her. And she certainly never thought her daughter would betray her, right? But her desire is destructive because she's putting her life on the line by even being with Baines. But she's just so, I think, enraptured by him. And this is also the scene where Stuart watches them have sex. He hears the noises coming out of the cabin and he watches through a peephole and he becomes a voyeur the way that Flora was in that other scene watching Baines and Ada lie together. 
uh, both Flora and Stuart are really outsiders to the relationship between Ada and Baines. And I think both of them become very jealous as well as a result. So in the end, am I conflicted about the relationship between Ada and Baines? Absolutely. It begins as coercion, but I think in the film, it it does seem to grow into love. Of course, I'm uncomfortable with the power dynamic. I'm uncomfortable that Ada comes to love someone who once forced her to do things against her will. At the same time, I think we have to look at it within the context of the story and of Ada's choices. On the one hand, there's Stuart, who doesn't understand her or feel love for her, a man who chops off her finger and tries to rape her twice and commits terrible acts of violence against her body. On the other hand, there's Baines, who is protective of her, who has been coercive at times, but who can also offer her some kind of passion and love. In Ada's life, these are her options. This is it. It's Baines or it's Stuart, right? Neither are perfect. I do see Ada connecting with her sexuality with Baines and escaping an abusive relationship with Stuart. I think Baines represents freedom. That's why she goes with him in the end on the boat when they leave together and why they seem to create a new life together when he makes her the metal finger and she's learning to speak and it shows at the end them kissing and all of that and their new life together. Some people don't like the happy ending. Even Jane Campion herself has said that she believes that Ada should have drowned with her piano in that dramatic ending. You know, they're on the boat, she's leaving with Baines, her foot gets stuck in the rope and she gets pulled under the water because she's telling them to dump the piano. Baines wants to take it with him, with them, wherever they're moving to. And it's important to know, I forgot to note, that Baines is actually already married. Uh, in the film, we learn that his wife lives in England, so I don't know where he goes with Ada exactly or what happens there. But he wants to take the piano because he knows how much it means to Ada. He understands her in that way, and he cares about her. But she tells him to dump it over, that it's it's too hard uh, for them to to take it with them. And I think that represents her willingness to let go of the past, maybe, you know, to cut ties with some of that. That maybe she doesn't need the piano because she's finally found somebody that she connects to and that she can express herself with. And maybe she doesn't feel like she needs that particular piano anymore. You know, her foot gets caught in the rope. She goes under the water and you think that she's going to drown until she frees her foot and she goes back up to the surface. I know a lot of people think that she should have died, that she should have drowned with the piano. But watching it this time, I kind of like the idea of Ada choosing life, of her resurrecting herself. Why does a woman have to die? You know, she's already suffered. So much violence has been committed against Ada already. Why can't she have happiness and a new start? So I like the idea of her choosing life, choosing to live. I think that's... A beautiful message in a way. It's this image of rebirth, of resurrection. But that final image of the film is incredibly ghostly. Where even though Ada lives and she's with Baines in her new life, she still thinks about the piano at the bottom of the ocean in its watery grave and herself attached to it and sort of floating above it. And maybe she's haunted by what could have happened to her. And maybe she's haunted by her own possible death. And maybe if she had stayed with Stuart, she would have died. And so I think in choosing Baines, she's choosing life. She's choosing maybe hope and possibility in a way. 
she has to free herself from the piano. She has something to live for. She has Flora. She has Baines. She has this other life to go to. Whereas before, she was basically given or sold off to Stuart. She had no choice when she got on that boat to go from Scotland to New Zealand. She was just a piece of property, a piece of cargo in a way. She had no agency in it, no autonomy in what she got to choose for her life. But the end of the film is very different where she chooses to be with Baines and she's going towards a life not of violence and subjugation and necessarily oppression, but of love and respect and tenderness, one would hope. And that's what comes off at the at the end of the film when she is with Baines. But that doesn't mean that I don't think that she's haunted by what could have been. And finally, just a word about the aesthetic, visual, sensuous beauty of this film. It can't be overlooked. It's full of images that haunt you and that convey a deep, inner, unspoken emotion and passion. Um, I think that Jane Campion's films really are a world that you enter into. It's a mysterious world. It's an inexplicable, sometimes strange and peculiar world. But I love sinking into this universe that she creates in her films. And her most unique creation, I think, is the piano out of all her films. It's one of those films you come back to and it's not without its problems. It's not without its flaws, obviously. It's a complicated work of art, but I think sometimes your emotional connection to something overrides everything else. That it's not always rational what you feel for these films or for a book or whatever piece of art that you're engaging with. Sometimes it's not rational. It's about the time at which you watched it. It's about how it affected you, how you became yourself through your contact with it. And some filmmakers I watch because I want to enter the universes that they create. I'm really addicted to them. And Jane Campion is that kind of director for me. I'm like addicted to the universe that she creates, to the textures, the sounds, the images, to the landscapes and the music and the characters. I really can't separate myself from this film, from the piano. I want to be inside it. It's like this other skin that I want to wear. I just want to be inside this film. And I'll probably always feel that way. And it's how I felt when I watched it again. And hopefully I'll read the book and I can extend some of my obsession. But this is a film that wraps you in mystery. You enter mystery when you watch the film. You can't quite explain everything about it and why it works and why it affects you the way that it does. You know, the images of the wilderness of New Zealand, you know, the trees, all the different scenes and the way that they're constructed, the passion, the piano, the music, all of it together. Holly Hunter's performance, everything. It's all these little pieces that come together. And for the piano, they really did. And I've tried to do justice to the film. I've tried to give you some background information. But the, but the main point for me has been to really talk about, my, talk about my emotional connection to the film. And while I grapple with certain things and I'm conflicted about certain things, at the end of the day, I really am in awe of Ada. And I see Ada as a woman fighting to survive, right? A woman who's very passionate, very connected to her piano and to music and to expressing herself through music. 
a woman who resists the oppression that she endures, who fights back against these men who try to violate her and hurt her the best that she can. She's not perfect and not everything she does makes total sense. But we humans never do make much sense, do we? She's just such a compelling character to me. And the whole film is just so haunting and beautiful and mysterious and mystical. I hope that I did some justice to it. I hope that I explained to you why I connect so much to it, why I love it so much, and why it still affects me in a really powerful way. I tried and I gave it my best. (laughs) That's all I can do. But thank you so much for listening. Until next time. Keep watching great films. Bye for now.